Now it is time for us uh, to read God's Word. We're going to be looking at a passage from John chapter 13, which you can find uh, on the, in the Bibles just in front of you on that little shelf in the pew um, on page 1,534. We've been reading through the book of John for a while. We're now at uh, John chapter 13, and I'm going to start today at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those that I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send, accepts me, and whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Jesus took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread... He went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Uh, Thanks, Ali. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
Um, we thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. We pray today as we hear a little more of that last night that Jesus had with his disciples, please show us once again how much you love us, how much he loves us and how that changes everything. Amen. Alrighty, can I ask you please to have your Bibles open again at John chapter 13? Uh, we're going to be focusing on the second half of the passage, verses 18 through 30. Um, please also have this leaflet that you're given as you came in open in front of you. You'll see a reasonably detailed outline as usual. There's a couple of extra Bible verses and you'll see on the right-hand side some blanks for you to fill in. There should be pens in front of you. I'll tell you what to write when we get there. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Lynn. I want to add my welcome to that of Bernie's before. Uh, particularly uh, happy Lunar New Year to those for whom that's especially significant. I'm not very Chinese, you know that, but I remembered to wear red. See, right there. I'm very proud of myself, so yeah, Happy New Year. Um, it is great to have you with us. If you look at your handout, you'll see at the top left there that where I wanted to start was by asking you, have you ever been to a complete disaster of a dinner party? Complete disaster of a dinner party. I thought I'd share with you some of my worst. Uh, there was the time where I turned up at a good mate's 21st birthday, this is a number of years ago. I dressed up in my best jeans and t-shirt um, only to discover that the day before they had changed the dress code to be black tie, but didn't tell me. Um, I can't work out if that was deliberate or not, but that wasn't a great night. Uh, there was the occasion when we invited the staff team around for dinner, and I had proudly made from scratch, this is me, right, proudly made from scratch a beef burgundy pie, and as I went to get it out of the oven, I dropped it on the floor. Now, I figured we were all friends, so I just scraped it up and we served it as a, as a de deconstructed pie that night. Uh, be careful if you accept an invitation to our house for dinner. Uh, there's, of course, then there's that moment, and we've all experienced it, that moment where you're at a dinner party, everyone's chat chatting loudly, lots of highly animated conversations, and just as you go to say something that's just a little bit inappropriate, in a voice that's just a little bit too loud, there's complete silence. Your words are just hanging there and everyone can hear them. Uh, in John chapter 13, we're halfway through a dinner party that you would say is fast becoming a train wreck. Last week, there was that incredibly uncomfortable moment as Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And this week, we watch in horror as Jesus is abandoned by his friends in his hour of need. There's actually two parts of the episode. Look at your handout there, top left, point one. Jesus says that Judas will betray him. Jesus says that Judas will betray him. Now start, if you will, by comparing the wonderful verse that we got to at the end of last week, verse 17, with the very disturbing first verse of this week, verse 18. Have a look at me there, John 13, verses 17 and 18. Uh, verse 17. Jesus says, Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. But verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me. There's incredible tension for us readers as we follow along with this episode. In particular, raise the question, how much confidence can we take from Jesus' great promise in verse 17, given his dire warning in verse 18, about what's going to happen next? I think what's especially disturbing is that Jesus explicitly says in verse 18, he is choosing some, but not everyone. And because he quotes from Scripture, 
Psalm 41, verse 9. It's there on your handout for the reference. Because he's quoting from Scripture, is Jesus implying that actually Judas has no say in the matter, as if his fate has been predetermined? Because if he is, then, it's there on your handout, in what sense can Judas be said to have agency and so be held accountable for his actions? So there's a great tension for us readers, even more so for the disciples. I imagine it would have been worse, don't you? As Jesus says these words, of course, what comes to their mind is, so who will it be? Can you even begin to imagine what it would have been like to have been there at the table? As everyone looks around at each other and then probably looks down and eventually look away. Uh, Now, of course, we readers have known since John 13, verse 2, it's printed there on your handout, we've known since then that it's going to be Judas. Uh, In fact, John even disclosed Judas's motives back in chapter 12, uh, printed there on your handout, verses 4 through 6. Tragically, Judas is going to do it because of money. And that's an idea I'll return to later. So I think that when Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, his point is not that Judas had no choice, rather, Jesus is not surprised. That Jesus is not losing control of the situation, despite what Judas will do. Now I suspect the proof that Judas has both agency and accountability lies in the fact that Here, Jesus doesn't out him publicly at this point. I presume, actually, that's because Jesus is giving Judas one last warning, one last chance to back down. Instead, what Jesus goes on to do in verses 19 and 20 is reassure his very nervous disciples. Look with me at verse 19 of chapter 13. Verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So according to Jesus, when Judas betrays him, it should enable his disciples to believe that he is who he says he is. In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, don't waste time speculating over who's going to do the deed. Rather, his betrayal will confirm his identity for them. He has been sent by God to do God's good, pleasing and perfect will. And that's the lesson that Jesus wants them to learn. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that even in the face of this terrible disaster, betrayal by one of his own, still it will confirm his identity and what he can do. Which, after all, is the whole point of John's biography in the first place. You'll see there on your handout, John 20, verses 30 and 31, that constant reminder that this whole account has been written that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. Well, as for Judas' betrayal itself, um, it unfolds in verses 21 through 30 in a kind of ghoulish slow motion. 
Uh, in fact, it's so awful, I'm not going to linger long over the details. I'll move through it relatively quickly so we can get to the big picture theological question that it raises. But if you follow along with me in your Bibles, verse 21, uh, once again, Jesus tells his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. This is happening. Verse 22, understandably, his disciples are stunned into silence. Verses 23 and 24. Um, now, I wonder if Peter is still smarting about being rebuked over the foot washing incident that we saw last week. So instead of speaking up loudly, verse 24, we're told, he quietly nudges the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's probably the author John. John is sitting next to Jesus, so Peter says to John, hey, ask Jesus which one of us he means. In verse 25, uh, you'll notice there, verse 25, we're told that John leans back against Jesus. I think that suggests there's a private conversation going on between John and Jesus at this point. Um, and I think probably Jesus' response is a private response to John as well. I say that because if you look at verse 26, verse 26, Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Now, the reason why I think this is a private conversation between John and Jesus is because somehow the other disciples don't hear they don't understand that Jesus is publicly naming Judas as his betrayer. What Jesus is saying, I think, is that by taking the bread from Jesus, Judas is exercising his agency in a way that will make him accountable for what he does next. Let me just pause for a moment and say that for Christians... This episode where Judas, Judas takes the bread for Christians, this is particularly appalling. I say that because unlike Matthew, Mark and Luke, John never records a Last Supper ceremony uh, where the disciples eat bread and drink wine as a way of identifying with Jesus, the thing that we do in communion once a month. John doesn't record that. The only episode John records is of Judas taking bread from Jesus by way of identifying with Satan. Which is tragic when you consider that back in chapter 6, printed there on your handout, Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Well, this part of the episode finishes in verses 27 through 30. At this point, apparently everyone does hear what Jesus says next to Judas. Pick it up in verse 27, the second half. Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. Everyone hears that. But verse 28, no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Uh, it seems that they think Jesus is sending Judas off on an errand. You go and buy more groceries or make a donation to charity. But Judas knows what's going on, and Jesus knows what's going on. And so, as Judas leaves, John sadly adds, did you notice verse 30? Verse 30, it was night. It was night. 
we watch as Judas walks away from Jesus, the one whom, back in chapter 12, we were reminded, it's there on your handout, Jesus is the light of the world. And off John goes into the darkness. Off Judas goes into the darkness. And yet, if Judas's betrayal wasn't bad enough, an equally tragic scene with Peter is about to unfold. So look with me at the right-hand side of your handout. Point two, Jesus says that Peter will deny him. Jesus says that Peter will deny him. And once again, I'm not going to linger too long on the details. We know from back in verse 1 of chapter 13, it's printed there on your handout, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. But now, in verses 31 and 32, we're told, look with me, John 13, verse 31, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Obviously, lots of Currences of the word glory. We're going to come back to this concept of glory in John 17 uh, because that's what the whole chapter is about. For now, Jesus seems to be describing the glory he will gain through his death and resurrection. Which, of course, makes sense. When Jesus dies and rises again, we know from chapter 1, printed there on your handout, he is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And so what Jesus is talking about at this point, I think, is the glory that is about to take place over the coming days. And you notice that verses 31 and 32 is talked about now and at once. It's very immediate. And I think that's a different glory from his triumphant return at the end of time. When every knee bows before him and every tongue confesses that he is Lord and his kingdom is fully consummated. And his reign will last forever. I'm trying to explain how there's two uses of glory in the Bible. Uh, there's a diagram on your handout. Now, it unfortunately, didn't turn out quite right. So, if you have a look on the screen behind me, this will hopefully make it a bit clearer. So, you can see a timeline here from the Last Supper, which is where we are in John 13. As Jesus looks ahead to his death and resurrection over the next, coming, over the next few days, that's the glory at once. Uh, Later, uh, we see this in Acts, he ascends to the Father before, at the end of time, Jesus will return to gather his people together. There is the glory still to come. Now, if that's what's going on in John 13, what that means is that for Jesus to be glorified at once, he must leave them. And so, back to your Bibles, verse 33, Jesus says... Uh, Where he is going, they cannot come. Uh, I think that's a reference uh, to the cross and his descent into hell and his resurrection on the third day. By contrast, if you skip ahead then to verse 36, verse 36, Peter says he doesn't want to be separated from Jesus, uh, even for an instant. Jesus tells him, Verse 36, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. I think Jesus is foreshadowing 
the magnificent picture of final, eternal glory. It's actually the picture in John 14, when Jesus returns and He gathers His people and He takes us to His Father's house, where He's gone to prepare a room for each one of us, that we might be with Him forever. And that, of course, is what we're going to look at next week. Well, once again, John has zoomed in on Peter. Once again, we hear Peter's brash promises, promises that make us smile because actually we know he's never going to keep them. Look at verse 37. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. To which Jesus delivers a humbling rebuke. Verse 38. Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, that is, before tomorrow, you will disown me three times. Well, once again, as with Judas, so with Peter. What Jesus says will take place, that's not predetermined. Peter has both agency and accountability for his actions. He is no puppet on a string He is no actor reading out pre-written lines. And so Peter's denial of Jesus the next day, what it will epitomise is the failings and the weaknesses which beset us all. You see, just as Judas failed to partake of the bread of life, so Peter will fail to follow the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John chapter 10, I printed there on your handout. I printed there so you can hear the irony. Peter has promised Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. It's completely unnecessary because Jesus had already promised to do just that for his disciples. Well, let me pause again then and for a moment try and address the underlying theological question I think that this, pas- this passage raises. Now, I printed there on your handout. Here's the question. Why will Peter be saved, but Judas will not be? Why will Peter eventually be saved, but not Judas? I want to ask that question because, actually, there will be no redemption for Judas. Matthew tells us that he hangs himself, overcome with guilt. Whereas John tells us in chapter 21 that Peter is eventually lovingly restored by the risen Jesus. So why? Why is Peter saved, but not Judas? Is Peter's sin less bad than Judas's? Is a fearful denial of Jesus somehow more forgivable than a greedy betrayal? That's the question, I think, that this passage raises. It's a big topic. Um, Let me just say this much. I think that what we learn from Judas and Peter is that no one deserves to be saved. I think the more we learn from Judas and Peter Peter, is that no one deserves to be saved. I think that taken together in John 13, they show that actually the only way that anyone can be saved is by God's gracious choice. This is what theologians call the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. And I think that's what's at play here 
uh, not just here actually, but throughout the New Testament and in fact the whole of Scripture. What it means, and here are the blanks for you to fill in on your handout, so if you've got your pen, here are the blanks. The doctrine of election means that if Judas is the worst of us and Peter is the best of us, together they show that all of us will let Jesus down, which means none of us deserve to be saved. I'll say it again, if Judas is the worst of us and Peter is the best of us, together they show that all of us will let Jesus down, which means none of us deserves to be saved. And that, I think, leads to the very definition of God's grace. God's grace is that none of us have any right to be saved, so we desperately need His intervention. And thankfully, God in His essence is loving and forgiving and patient and kind. I realise that what I've said, it doesn't answer every question. And in particular, I understand that for some of us, we're still thinking, I've said it there on your handout, um, is it fair that Peter gets a second chance but Judas does not? Well, again, let me say this much. Because we have all renounced Christ in some way, if fairness were the basis of God's choice, no one would be saved. After all, you could hardly claim that Judas was acting out of ignorance. Both he and Peter had every opportunity to take the bread of life, to walk in the light of the world, to find refuge in the care of the Good Shepherd. And that they've made their own choices and that they're responsible for their own actions, nevertheless, even now, on this fateful night, there is still time to turn back to God. God whose compassion and mercy is new every morning. Actually, I think that's the lovely assurance that we saw back in John 6, on the left-hand side of your handout near the bottom, John 6, 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, let me just say two more things before I try and wrap it up for us. Uh, two practical implications. The first one is this. One of the questions that is raised by a passage like John 13 is one that often Christians ask and that's this. Can Christians therefore fall away? Can Christians fall away? What are we meant to think about those we know and love? People like Judas, who have walked away from Jesus. Is there any hope for them? Well, it's an important question to ask. Uh, what I thought I would do is that uh, on the 3rd of March, so in th uh, three weeks, four weeks' time, I thought I'd pause in this series and in our church gathering try and reflect on that particular question together. Can a Christian fall away? So stay tuned for that in a few weeks' time on the 3rd of March. Second thing I thought I'd say is that for now, the doctrine of election is actually the reason why, for 2,000 years, Christians have been committed to global mission. 
The doctrine of election is the reason why for 2,000 years we've, we've been committed to global mission. We've been committed to telling the world about Jesus, and taking the good news to the ends of the earth, even at great personal cost. Why? Because anyone can be saved through Jesus, but they have to hear about him first. Can I say that if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, uh, then once again, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us. Uh, particularly if you're here at the invitation of a member of this church, maybe someone who keeps inviting you to church and always wanting to talk to you about Jesus. Can I say to you that the reason why they keep doing that, actually there's two reasons. One is because they're convinced everyone has sinned. And the second reason is because they're convinced that anyone can be saved. If only you will come to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And in fact, I'd love to invite you to join us next week as we come to that great saying of Jesus and that great passage in John 14. Well, back to your handout. Point three then, let me try and wrap it up. So what for us? So what for us? Uh, given all the uncertainty and stress in John 13, uh, Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He said one of them is going to betray him and another is going to deny him. Given all that, the question there on your handout, how would Jesus have us live? How would Jesus have us live? Well, the eagle-eyed amongst us will notice that as we made our way through the passage, I actually skipped over verses 34 and 35. Uh, and yet, I think they're the key to the whole passage. And I want us to finish here because it's here that Jesus tells his disciples to do what to do after he's gone. Look at it with me, John 13, verses 34 and 35. I've printed them there on your handout so you can see them. Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A couple of things to notice about what Jesus says here. Firstly, when he says a new commandment, he doesn't mean a novel commandment or a previously unheard of commandment. He's actually quoting from Leviticus 19, from the Old Testament, which I printed there for you on your handout. So when he says a new commandment, what I think Jesus is saying to his disciples is, okay guys, listen up, this is what it all boils down to. This is what you should focus on amidst all the uncertainty and stress, amidst all your grief and fear, even when there's a denial and betrayal. This is how you live. Love one another the way I loved you first. And actually, I think it's designed to complement the foot-washing demonstration that we saw last week in the first half of John 13. As Jesus washed their feet, so they should wash one another's feet. As Jesus loves them, they are to love each other. And again, without carrying on about it, you can see from the picture at the bottom, once again, the vertical shapes the horizontal. I talked about this last week. Um, I was giving out stickers last week. I still have about a thousand left. So if you want to come and see me afterwards and you didn't get one, as a reminder of how the way God treats us, the vertical shapes the horizontal, come and see me afterwards. I've got plenty more to go. Make no mistake, 
what John 13 shows us is that everyone tends either towards Judas or to Peter. Everyone tends either towards Judas or to Peter. You see, Judas represents all of us who might be lured away from Jesus by something that looks better or shinier or more pleasing to the eye or more imminent. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about success or experience or comfort or pleasure. And Peter, Peter on the other hand, he represents all of us who are afraid to stand up publicly for Jesus, who are tempted to deny him at that moment of confrontation or perhaps make sure we're never put on the spot. Judas or Peter? It's right for me to ask this morning, who are you more likely to be? And yet the thing is, John 13 is not trying to leave us all hung up, wondering in doubt, am I more like one than the other? That kind of inward, navel-gaving introspection, it actually misses the whole point of the chapter. It's according to Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, it suggests a better way. And it offers a much better invitation. Will you live each day in light of God's preceding grace? God's preceding grace. Not trying to earn his favour or measure up to his standards. We can't anyway. Instead, rejoicing, delighting, revelling in his love for us. A love that makes us want to love all people, all his people, to the best of our ability. It struck me this week as I was preparing uh, that actually, in many ways, I ought to finish John 13 with exactly the same application as last Sunday. Love one another, for he has loved us first. You know, last week I talked about the call to willing self-sacrificial service because Jesus served us first. Especially as we move to two all-age AM gatherings next Sunday. And uh, Bernie's going to come and talk with, our, with us about that in a moment. But I also talked last week about all the newcomers looking for a new church home who will join us over February. And how for us to be a church that welcomes them into our family, even though it's costly. And it takes us outside our comfort zone. And the only reason we do it is because, well, Jesus stepped out of his comfort zone first for us. It seemed to me, actually, that the place to finish is with another story. It's the story of one of our members of this church and how they've come to faith, how us loving one another enables everyone to know that we are Jesus' disciples. Uh, I have her permission to share this story. It's actually the story of one of our 6 PMers. Uh, her name is Verity. 
as she grew up in this church, but as a young adult, walked away from God, and for over a decade lived in complete denial of Jesus, until her mother got cancer. At that point, and for the next two years, Verity watched and saw how much the members of this church loved her mum and her mum's whole family. Until eventually, after her mum had died, she tentatively returned to us. And for the first time in her life, discovered the love of Christ for herself. That was 20 years ago. And 20 years later, she is still joyfully serving here in the way that Jesus served us and in the way that others served her. She's involved in our kids' ministry, as one of our growth group leaders. She's on our church's leadership team. I'm so personally encouraged by the way I see her live each day trying to show the love of Christ to others so that they might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and would find life in his name. And my prayer is that that story would be repeated again and again and again. So let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection, the promise of his return. Thank you that he loved us first, that we might love others, that in turn they might see we are disciples of your Son, our Saviour and Lord. And we pray it for his sake. Amen.